Hey y'all, happy Monday and welcome back to another episode of the One Take Wonder with the Hot Weird Girl. I'm Hot Weird Girl in Question. If you want to catch up with me on other platforms, I love hearing from you guys. You can find me at Hot Weird Girl, that's girl with a zero instead of an I, on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And today, as promised, we're getting into the concept of who owns joy and talking about one of my favorite articles of all time from The Atlantic. But first, I'd I don't know. I just wanted to catch up with you guys on like a little bit of a small rant. If you're listening to this as the podcast comes out, so that would be July 31st, 2023. There's a bit of a scandal on TikTok. When isn't there? I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it centers around book talk, specifically spicy book talk. And I've said this before about porn consumption. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't think that you should tell people that you read smut because if I asked you your favorite movie and you told me a title off of Cornhub, I would start screaming. But I ask you what's your favorite book and you start telling me about this like werewolf bondage fantasy. That's not polite. That's not ladylike. Okay? Lie. I'm. Some people are going to be like, that's judgmental. That's not a safe space. I'm not a safe space. socially liberal morally conservative so and my friends got mad at me when i tweeted it and they got mad when i said the same thing to their face and i'm sure some of you will get mad on me on tiktok but i just don't want to know about your sexual proclivities when i ask you about your hobbies that's my right and i was somewhat joking but i also no i wasn't joking at all i was actually being dead the fuck serious i just always keep a comedic tone because I suffer from resting bitch face and voice. And so I feel like, you know, instead of coming off as an uber cunt, it's like, okay, well, at least it sounds more like a bitch trying to be funny. Or at least that's what I like to think. Um, Don't correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not in the mood to have my self-image shattered today. But it got me thinking that like we're all way too casual in the ways in which we talk about sex, particularly porn, but we don't talk about what's really important, which is the fact that straight women don't have good sex. And this is not like some, oh, in all my years of experience, I haven't had good sex. Although importantly, I'm not straight. I do think people forget that. But moving on, When you look at the research of the orgasm gap, it gets incredibly depressing. The day that I'm recording this, July 31st, is National Orgasm Day, and what better day to celebrate than depressing you all with pretty grim statistics um, about sex. So 76% of the time, according to a study performed by Durex in 2017, women did not orgasm with sex during men. Comparing that to 39% of men that took part in the study claimed to have difficulties with climaxing during sex with women. 
And yet, despite this, 83% of women who participated in the study claimed that they were content with how often they orgasm, highlighting, quote, the normative cultural acceptance of unequal pleasure during sex. Now, notably, it's not really clear whether Durham included non-penetrative aspects of sex in the study. And I guess before I go forward, I should say that intimacy and the goals of intimacy are different for every couple or every person participating in sex with their partner. But let's not you know, get lost in jargon and pretend that most people are not having sex, not just as a form of connection and love, but also just to fundamentally get off and feel good. Except for women aren't feeling good, but it's not fair to say women because lesbians orgasm 86% of the time in um, sexual encounters, in homosexual encounters, and gay men are orgasming like 94% of the time, which is good for them. Straight women, that's about 40%. Want to guess where straight men are at? The same as their queer counterparts. So again, it's really straight women getting the short end of the stick. And I think it's because of the language and the way that we describe sex, like that article that I just read, again, from the direct study in 2017, that there's this culture acceptance of unequal pleasure during sex. I can't tell you how many like girls chats I've sat through where girls will be like, yeah, I love my boyfriend so much. Also, he's never made me come. And everyone's like, yeah, no, that's so great. Mind you, that man would literally leave you on the side of the road, potentially set you on fire if he ever spent a long period of time with you and you just never made him feel good sexually. Like, you would never be his girlfriend in the first place. For his... Like, it is... It's so unfathomable to me that so many women are conditioned and then continue to accept that into their adult life that sexual pleasure is secondary and especially because as women we don't accept everything that the patriarchy tells us right like chances are if you're listening to this podcast you're probably more liberated than the patriarchy would want like you wear shorts you potentially don't shave your legs before going outside you swear and you have an education those are all things that the traditional patriarchy doesn't want for you so it kind of frustrates me it's like okay girl like you're willing to wear a crop top in public but you're not willing to tell the man that you're fucking that i don't know he should do something for you once like why do we accept this And I'm thinking about this in book talk because it seems like one of the only outlets women have to discuss their sexual frustration are through these like romance novels, which calling them romance novels, I think is problematic for so many reasons. First of all, they're books with dubious consent. And that that starts me on another rant that I want to talk about. One of my favorite clips of all time was from this sex anthropologist like cultural researcher where she talks about the sex that black people use to describe the language that black people use to describe sex as inherently violent i'll murder the pussy i'll beat the pussy up etc etc and that's so well she used the black community as an example i do think it's widespread throughout american culture just this like dominating language to sex and i it's so apparent to see and book talk because it's all these situations where like men are clearly violating the boundaries of women 
but in a way that's like sexy and cool. Does that make sense? Which is why it doesn't surprise me that these women then struggle with understanding appropriate sexual boundaries in real life, for example, not harassing celebrities. But it's also like, what standards or lack thereof do we have for men as sexual partners? There was this TikTok comment and I wish I could find it. It was from like seven months ago, but I think about it all the time. And girl, if you ever listen to this, just know that you changed my life. I think we're all familiar with the concept that men see sex as something they do to women, but so many women also view sex as something that's just passively done to them, that they have no real autonomy over. Even from real life conversations, there's been more than one person I've had to pull aside and ask them, like, what autonomy do you feel like you have in your own sex life? Because I think a lot of women just fall into that trap of, well, it's not supposed to be super pleasurable for me. And the pleasurable part is that he'll hopefully like me more. And it's specifically this idea of using sex as a manipulation tool to get someone to stay with you, to like you, to think you're cool, funny, hot, pretty, and not having sex with this person for your own gratification or pleasure that I think it's the most disheartening because then we also wrap up sex and value. So you've given away something that you feel is valuable and potentially tainted if this you know sexual encounter doesn't work out and then it doesn't and you didn't even enjoy anything from it. Like you can't even walk away from that situation being like, oh, well, you know, I did have really good sex with my situationship. You're like, okay, that sex was mid and he treated me horribly, but I felt like I couldn't leave because I placed so much value in this like purity of who I've given my body to. This was a quick rant. I just wanted to get it off my chest because it's odious and as embarrassing, I think talking about smut in public is, at least these women have some autonomy over their sexual pleasure, which is truly better than the rest of us. But you know, again, my God, I wish people would keep their werewolf fantasies to themselves. But let's get into the real meat of this podcast. I have no idea how it got so sexually perverted so soon. My apologies. Let's talk about who owns joy. It's a really common refrain on the internet. You had to be there or only 90s kids will understand this. And even more specific than that, there's the sentiment on the internet that Oh, if you didn't experience college in 2016, you didn't get the real college experience. We had it the best. Other people won't compare. My childhood cartoons were the best. Nobody else's childhood was that lit. Mine was better than yours. On multiple episodes of this podcast, I've talked about this idea well, not this idea, but this very concrete cultural principle we have that exclusivity and rarity is inherently superior. And the best way that I can talk about this is reading one of my favorite articles of all time. It was published in The Atlantic, Diamonds Aren't Special and Neither Is Your Love by Jaya Saxena. And the tagline, I mean, the tagline alone brings tears to my eyes. We've coupled love to marriage and marriage to gems and all three thrive on the assumption of rarity. What would it mean for love to be common? What would it mean if we wanted the joy that we experience to not be something that's limited to ourselves, but something we want for others? Does it take away from our experiences to know that someone else is capable of experiencing joy, love, and affection in the same ways that we experience them? And why do we feel like love, which is arguably 
a renewable resource, something that exists in so many capacities and something that God willing, all 8 billion people on this planet experience in some capacity in their lifetime ought to be something that's rare. In this article, the author grapples with her own relationship with her partner, Matt, and what it meant to want love and marriage while not wanting to fall into the traps of the banality of the institution. And so she talks a lot about the rarity of diamonds and marriage. And while I'm not going to read the entire article, these two passages are my absolute favorite, and I want to share them with you. So first... We've coupled love to marriage and we've coupled marriage to diamonds and all three thrive on the assumption of rarity. What would it mean for love to be common, for marriage to become irrelevant as its benefits are made widely widely available to all? I say this as someone in a love and in a marriage who gets fiercely defensive of those things, but I could have easily married my college boyfriend if the terrier were right. I could have married anyone, which is not something I'm supposed to think about. We know that love is not perfect, that it's arbitrary and common, that if we grew up a state away or spoke a different language, we might not have fallen in love with the person we currently love. But to admit that would be to break the spell and rebuild our relationships on what exactly? I don't know how to value things if they're not unique. I don't know how to care about something if it's not special. And though I feel like my relationship is one of a kind, I don't know why that is. That latter portion I think about it like once a week, This, the idea that love is arbitrary and common, but specifically, I don't know how to value things if they're not unique. What would it mean if the joy that I've experienced in this life, if all of my favorite memories were not special to me or not special because I'm a special person, but simply happened because joy and love is abundant and I happened to get my hands on it at that time in the way that thousands, millions, billions of people are able to get their hands on joy? Why is that not a premise that fundamentally excites me? And the closer of this article which is the following. The love that you build a marriage on is lying at the back of every cave, amply dull, waiting for someone brave enough to make the journey and bring the right tools. Diamonds, the perfect stone, are not scarce and neither is love. It can show up in any size, hidden under any mantle, forged in the worst and weirdest conditions. What if diamonds were more special the more we had, and seeing one on someone else only confirmed to both of you how wonderful your shared accessorizing was? I'm trying to let my diamond make me as common as it is, part of a world in which caves overflow with unimpressive pebbles just waiting to be shined up and sold. I do not want my sense of self to be based on what others do not or cannot have. I want to feel the true abundance of love. That I mean, the first time I read this, I cried, and I can really say that this like fundamentally shaped who I am as a person now that I'm in the tail end of, okay, I'm not in the tail end of my 20s, it's still four years, still 30, but now that I'm in, I don't know, older and wiser than I was five years ago, and certainly when I first read this article, I think two or three years ago, that I don't, I want the love that I have with my partners and my friends to be special because I find value in it, not that other people can't find love. And I feel like once you recognize this in, 
like it's such a contradiction to be a lover girl and want the best for people but also want your experiences to be limited to you there's something so selfish about holding on to this joy about having to center our experiences on tempering someone else's ability to experience something the way you did right Someone could have had a great and excellent childhood without watching the Rugrats when they came home from first grade. Someone can have treasured childhood knowledge or, or memories of Disney Channel shows that I don't know or understand because I either wasn't born yet or I was too old to appreciate them. And it doesn't make it any less valid and it doesn't take away from the fact that that's what made their childhood perfect. I want to believe that other people's joy and abundance is something like a shared diamond on our fingers, as the author said, and that we take pride in accessorizing. Joy is not a section in the club, something that you get to access only because you're the right kind of person or the luckiest kind of person. In reality, I think it should be soothing, or at least I'm soothed by the idea that if love was so common, it has to happen to me someday. And because I so deeply believe that the personal is political, I can't help but connect this back to the way that we politically in this country restrict resources from other people because they're seen as undeserving. While I have food in my belly and a roof over my head and electricity in my home and clean running water because I'm special and I deserve those things, you are denied the joy and the privileges of comfortable living, of stress-free living, because it would take away from my ability to feel proud of those things because you had them as well. Because if we all share this joyful experience and it's less special to those who get it, because if we all have a universal basic income or healthcare or jobs that pay a living wage or respect and dignity, regardless of the class that we live in, then it would be less special for me to be upper class and above you. And I know it seems like at first I'm, I'm reaching or trying to be preachy, but I think it's so connected because ultimately the joys, the things we build our life on are also inherently political. Being able to say, I enjoyed X, Y, and Z growing up meant that you had to have a TV, which meant that your parents came from a certain socioeconomic background. And while I sometimes think that we get lost in this stacking of privileges or thinking about political theory, I don't know too narrowly as it applies to our lives i think this is like a really good example because i think it's a wonked out fucked up scary thing to do to try to limit the pleasures that we feel from other people because we think the poor are less deserving or well rather capitalism necessitates that there is always a poor underclass which in america has always been tied to race specifically black people and so we've coped with a lot of attitudes such as racial inferiority and white superiority um the idea that you can be more or less deserving of basic principles as if there is not an inherent human dignity in it all in us all that demands a certain respect from both the individual and our government and that respect looks like a healthy enjoyable quality of life as the basic necessity for all but i really think it starts with these attitudes we have that joy and pleasure are something that we can take immediate stake and ownership over
because I really liked what the author said that your relationship may not necessarily be something rare and unique, but rather many people experience that heartwarming feeling of watching your boyfriend interact with your friends or saying, I love you for the first time or having a really good night out on the town with your sister or your girls, or just experiencing life in whatever way makes you happy, why do we not want that for other people? And how do those attitudes translate politically? Like I think about that all the time. And maybe people at parties don't like that. No, that's not true. I'm actually really fun at parties. But I, I do, I think about it often because it's hard once you point it out. And I hope now that I've pointed it out to you, if you've never thought about this, you can see it. How like we want to take every little good thing in America and make it ours uniquely because somehow it would be seen as ruined if other people got it. A lot of social convention, things we hold as tried and treasured cultural norms are actually just justifications for really fucked up cultural practices that only only benefit the elite like this exclusivity culture so that you can feel better and again i keep giving the example of the section but it's just like so perfect like this idea that you sitting in a booth paying for your expensive drinks and by the way like as someone who participates in section culture, okay, like I know what I'm talking about and the flex that people feel and the way you feel that you're in a section, the way that that pertains to everyday relationships is not surprising when you consider that capitalism requires us to think that way of resources and quality of life, that it has to be exclusive to other people. And that ultimately only a very narrow, very, 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 very small chosen few get to experience those things, but that they become a goalpost for what everyone else looks up to. And like question that the next time you're out for a nature walk, which I highly recommend you do, everyone should take at least one walk a day. Like really ask yourself what social conventions you're holding on to and then have a Jimmy Neutron brain, brain bust moment. Oh my god, blame blast, brain blast? Do I struggle with saying my R's? Brain blast moment. And ask yourself, which oligarch benefits from this? Because I guarantee you, so many of the things, not all, but so many of the social conventions you're holding on to are merely just mental bondage to keep you in your place and to keep you um, ignorant and not questioning why things are the way they are. Because if you can convince a horse that it's eating better than the next horse in the stable, then it won't question why it also has so little food. It'll just be too happy munching. That's a metaphor I made up myself, clearly, because if I had just cited any one of the more of the popular sayings, it would have actually made sense. But hopefully you're rocking with me and you're rocking with this episode. And I know after last week's lighthearted series, you know, kind of like return to your roots, talk about things that are more serious. If you like this podcast, I upload a new episode every Monday night until, well, forever. That's really the plan. Um, 
but also you should reach out to me on social media. I'm on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Hot Weird Girl. That's girl with a zero instead of an I. If you made it to the episode, I love you. And as a treat, I'm going to start off the episode with like a 10 to 15 minute, well, the start off next week's episode with a 10 to 15 minute, just answering some of the questions that you guys have asked that I didn't necessarily know if I could make a full episode out of, but still I want to address your guys' questions. And as always, I love speaking with you guys. It literally makes my week whenever you guys like tweet or Instagram or DM me on TikTok to say that you like my content. So if you're feeling so inclined to do that, please do that. And please give this podcast five stars on apple music and spotify share it with a friend someone who'd like to listen and learn i promise there's always good stuff here to walk away from i'm really rambling i love you so much for making it to the end of the episode see you next week